Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning, Good morning Kathy. Good morning. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, very happy to introduce Kathy Fisher to you guys, who's uh, giving our talk this morning. She's been practicing Zen for many years, uh, first as a student and then as an ordained priest, and finally as a teacher, which happens to some of us. <laughs> she lived at Tassajara Zen Center and then Green Gulch for about 20 years, where she raised her twin sons with her husband, Norman, whom some of you may have heard of. <laughs> uh, she also worked as a science teacher. Uh, um, when I visited her a few years ago, I think she was finishing her career as a science teacher. <clears throat> uh, she taught in Mill Valley, and more recently she's been a residential teacher at Upaya Zen Center, where she will uh, return in October to be in residence again. So, welcome, Kathy. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure. Um, do we do we begin by chanting or anything like that? At the end. At the end. At the end. Okay. So I can just start yapping away here. <laughs> All right. Anyway, I've been looking forward to. I'm sorry, Kathy. One moment. Okay. <clears throat> Sorry about that. That's okay. Is that, how's are are we in? Can people hear okay? Yeah. Okay. Maybe turn my sound up. Is that better? It is. Yeah. Okay. Good. All right. <clears throat> anyway, I'm very happy to. Um, Meet Minnesota. It's you know you you're you've always been uh, you know part part of our family and um, I have I don't think I've ever been to Minnesota and uh, even though my father was born there so it's 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 wonderful to make the connection this morning and you know I've I've crossed paths with many people uh, in your sangha past and present so. Anyway, it's a pleasure to be among you. And it looks to me like from what you're wearing that you have um, hot weather where you are. It's chilly, foggy, and cold where I am, where it, which is our normal mode in the summertime. We, we call August, foggest. <laughs> coast here and so what i have to say about those of you who are suffering from the heat come here <laughs> so um this morning um what i would like to talk about is the third paramita the perfection of patience but it'll take me a few minutes to get to to get to that exact topic the reason I want to talk about this is that this is what uh, we're studying in my Dharma group. And I don't know, maybe it's because I'm getting older. I can't seem to take on more than one topic at a time. So for me, you know, the topic I'm focused on becomes kind of a total immersion thing. 
a reference point for everything. And kind of a vortex, like in those weird movies, a vortex that everything else kind of falls into. So I, I don't necessarily recommend this approach. It's just that it seems to be how I function. So um, that's why we're going to be talking about the perfection of patience this morning. So just to back up a little bit, in the case of the paramitas, the perfections of giving ethical conduct, patience, vigor, <clears throat> meditation, and wisdom, uh, in my group, we've been focusing especially on the perfection part. You know, like no giver, no receiver, no gift. Um, or like, like giving the wildflowers on the distant mountain to the Tathagata. <clears throat> so this is a beautiful image, giving the flowers on the distant mountain to the Tathagata. And it, it's an image that kind of blows apart our usual idea of giving. So the wildflowers on the distant mountain are not and never were mine. And yet I give them without ever even seeing them, let alone owning them. Traditionally, whatever that means, we give to accrue merit. You know, like Emperor Wu of Liang, what merit do I get for all the good work I've done? You know, this is no small or trivial question. We can all kind of hear the anguish in the question. After all I've done for you, this, you know, it's kind of like a human refrain, a human anthem. Going back to giving the wildflowers on the distant mountain to the Tathagata, it's almost as if we're speaking in a different language, rather than using uh, words with concepts and meaning, we're now kind of howling or barking or chirping, expressing something that is not confined by language, that is not made of definitions and concepts and abstractions. And in this language, what is the merit accrued? Where am I going to put it once I get it? Should I rent a storage unit to keep my accrued merit? I think that's what Emperor Wu of Liang had in mind for himself. He had a storage unit for his accrued merit. But where is this person who rented the storage unit last week? And is the person the same as the person that rented the storage unit? Is the merit the same? Is the storage unit the same? We seem to have a collision of models, of language, of thought. And, you know, even if we put aside the thorny issue of merit, and just relate to our deep desire to give, to help where we can, to reach out wherever we can. 
this can turn into the to-do list from hell. <laughs> Exhausting and unsustainable. So the, and the perennial question, I think the perennial question for anyone in a helping profession, certainly any activist and pretty much anyone is how can I sustain this? In the case of the perfection of giving, it doesn't seem to be about, for example, running around madly acquiring and distributing materials where they are needed, though that is not excluded. We might say the perfection of giving is more about trusting the gift that is already given. The wildflowers are already given. We might say the perfection of giving is in nurturing a grateful heart for the gifts already given. This expresses the sense of a different language, a chirp or a howl, which I mentioned before. I think it's important to see that we don't have to obliterate or get over or see through the mind that generates con concepts, to-do lists, or sings the old anthems like, after all I've done for you, this. I'm calling these different languages just so that we can talk to each other. In fact, these languages do not exclude each other. They're both our human inheritance. What I mean is giving the gift that is already given to the Tathagatas does not mean that we don't have to give a gift, a birthday gift to our granddaughter. We do both and they are not in conflict. So with that in mind about perfection, the perfections, <clears throat> especially a perfection of giving. Moving on to the perfection of patience, uh, the Kishanti, Kishanti Paramita. As I was reading about the practices to evoke patience in the midst of hardship and pain and anger and disappointment and grief and impatience, when there is no fix, or at least no immediate or apparent fix. There is nothing to be done except to stay and stay and stay. What came to my mind is that we have lots of body wisdom that reinforce the perfection of patience. This is not my field of expertise but I really like to read about the autonomic nervous system, which consists of the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. So one, the sympathetic is the uh, fight or flight and the other, uh, the parasympathetic is the one that calms us down when the perception of danger is gone. So here we have the perfection of, of patience the patience that is already given, it's already our body wisdom, already present. We can trust and nurture the patient body 
already given. <clears throat> Things that support the parasympathetic nervous system, the one that calms us down, the kinds of things that uh, do that are breathing in and out. And also performing simple repetitive physical activities, things like knitting, sewing, wood carving, all the cleaning tasks and all the crafts that we can think of include some moments of decision and inspiration. Yet most of the time spent on these, these activities is repetitive. This is also characteristic of work in a Zen monastery. And whenever we gather, excuse me, or sessions. I remember when Norman and I first went to Tassajara in the 70s. We were assigned work on a crew, and, and our head of crew told us exactly what to do. Of course, all, all of us, being independent and creative problem solvers, took turns offering the crew head suggestions for performing the tasks more efficiently or more effectively. Apparently, this sort of response was so prevalent among us young monks that the topic crept into lectures. <laughs> Just do what you are asked without question or hesitation, without thought. We do not argue with the sun when it rises. Why so early today? We get up, the sun gets up, day after day after day. We live by the rhythm of the sunrise and the sunset. We work by the rhythm of tools and procedures as described by our crew head, day after day after day. So this was the, these are the instructions for young Zen monks. <clears throat> And in fact, this um, Zen monastic practice, <clears throat> instructions for young monks, is rather humorously portrayed in the koan about Jiaozhou and the tea lady, in which the monks stop by the tea house and ask the tea lady, what's the way to Mount Taishan? She says, right straight on. Off they go as instructed, and she says, fine monks, but off they go just like all the others. So the monks miss, <laughs> uh, um, they, they miss the essential teaching, which is right straight on. Right straight on is teaching, which is all over the place in Zen. It's in Vimalakirti, it's in Huainan, in the Platform Sutra, it's elsewhere. It's just a really basic teaching and they just miss it and think that, you know, she's telling him to walk down the road. <clears throat> And why? Because that's what they were taught. They were taught to just do what they're told, just like Norman and I were. Uh, it's just, uh, you just do. You do not question, you do not second guess. 
this this practice is very um it's actually very calming for us when we relieve ourselves if, if we have the privilege and the opportunity to be relieved of the responsibility of making decisions or figuring out how to solve a problem if we are just following instructions it's a different kind of work that most of us don't spend a lot of time doing and it's very um um uh it's it's very calming so <clears throat> beginning with breathing in and out and performing simple repetitive tasks these are among our built-in access to patients patients already present in our body in the evolutionary wisdom that restores our calm state of mind and body there's a whole list of recommended activities to support and fortify the parasympathetic the parasympathetic nervous system like listening to music and singing and when we uh when we gather together for do to do formal zen practice our practice is characterized by our sitting uh breathing in and out and then getting up for bowing and chanting together and then eating together and cleaning up the same bowls over again and over again day after day so this is very helpful in a monastery <clears throat> and i think we all know it's very helpful in our daily lives sometimes when we feel agitated overwhelmed distraught it feels good just to pick up a broom and sweep the front porch or to go wash the dishes these things are familiar to us like so many gifts of our practice it is the gift that is already given the gift of patience is already given and the last point i want to talk about with this is in in my group we've been talking a lot about our human inclination to deceive ourselves and how much that inclination takes center stage in our meditation practice we seem to so easily get swept off by some self-deceptive story about this that or the other thing before we even realize it like we get on a like we've gotten on a boat and we're sailing across the sea but we forgot how we even got here on the boat we forgot that there was a boat we forgot everything about where how we got to where we are I've been thinking about this inclination our inclination to uh toward self-deception especially since I saw the Barbie movie <laughs> <laughs> which I found to be a brilliant treatise and commentary on this topic <laughs> so much of our practice this returning and returning and returning to practice is learning how to catch the moment between when an impulse arises and we decide whether we're going to act on it there's nothing wrong with impulses arising that's who we are that's what we do but as we know we all get into trouble when we can't tell the difference between an impulse 
and a directive. So to catch that moment when we can say, oh, this is an impulse. I think that is a gift of patience, a moment, a pause of, okay, the impulse is pretty exciting, but it is an impulse. I can choose whether to act or not. So this catching that moment is one of the big challenges of our practice. And it's, it's, it's the, I think it's one of the core crafts of our practice to discern our mental activities such that we can see, oh, a thought is a thought, a feeling is a feeling, an impulse is an impulse. I'm not a slave to these things. So in this way, patience is a core gift that, we, that is already given and it's accessible all the time and it is core to the craft of our meditation practice. It's part of who we are, breathing in and breathing out. The patient, our patience is the gift already given. So please enjoy your practice. And I would really, this has been a short talk. And so maybe that means we have a little longer to have discussion. I would love to hear from you and love to hear your um, uh, something about your practice. Thank you. If there are folks online who would like to ask a question or comment, you can simply unmute yourselves. How do we ask a question if we're out here? Just ask it. <laughs> so, um, Kathy was, uh, if the good monk uh, goes straight on, and listens to the practice leader and doesn't question the practice leader, then does Joshu, when he goes out and checks the tea lady, does he question the practice leader? How does that work? I know this doesn't have much to do with my practice per se. Actually, it does, really. <laughs> Did you get that? Or? Um, um, I sort of got part of it, but um, the. The sound's a little funky, but also, could you just say it again? So, I, as I understand in that koan, Joshu goes and checks out the tea lady, Does is that the case? So, what does he, then if the tea lady is the practice leader, does Joshu question the practice leader when he checks out the tea lady? Well, we don't know, but the, the, the way it reads to me is, you know, the, the story is um, the monks come to Joshu and say, there's this tea lady out there and here's what, to, here's what happens to all of us. And he says, oh, I'll go check her out. And he leaves 
and he goes and then he comes back and he says i checked her out (laughs) (laughs) so i'm you know to me these i mean this was you know jojo lived in uh, uh, ninth century China. We're talking about a long time ago, and a piece of writing and record that has, you know, taken a twisty route to get to us. So we don't really know. But for me, what comes across <clears throat> is the, you know, I, I I was I was trying to make the point that. We, we often uh, get into trouble in practice, I think, people that I talk to, when we make enemies of ourselves, like we say, oh, those thoughts, if only I could get rid of them, or this, you know, this impatience that I feel, if only I could slash and burn and just get rid of it and just be a patient person all the time and not have any thoughts. I think that is not our practice. I think... We are whole human beings, including all the funky stuff and all the messy stuff, as well as all the sublime stuff. And I don't, my own, my own, uh, what I have to contribute to this conversation is that we're not here to get rid of any of it. But we are here to refine our, uh, our human life, which means not to you know, to learn how not to let anger be the boss, to learn how not to uh, to to allow um, compassion to come out instead of browbeating ourselves that we're not compassionate enough. That whatever whatever our human life is can be acceptable to us, and then with our practice we're you know we're discerning and we're um uh refining but we are not judging and excluding and purifying in the sense of getting rid of things so in the case of this conversation it, i have the feeling that jojo and the tea lady were best buddies i mean he knew perfectly well who this person was he was she was right outside his monastery after all and and he just went to visit her you know and um, and so to me, there's a, a story is not about who got it right and who got it wrong and whose teaching is right and whatever. It's, it's about human connection. It's about the relationships that are, you know, support the whole story that are usually not spoken about directly. Anyway, to me, that's what I mean. Jojo, you know, he was he started teaching when he was eighty years old. He was an old guy, and he, he had his monastery. And the tea lady was outside, and he's got these young. He's getting famous. He's probably very famous. He's got these young, you know, enthusiastic monks coming and going, trying to corral them a little bit, you know, help them out in whatever way he can. So that's how it reads to me. Um, it's not about. Um, correcting instruction Um, you know we see the young monks behavior it's completely appropriate for the young monks to be young monks how are they not going to be young monks you know it was completely appropriate when norman and i first went to tasahara 
for all of us young, you know, Berkeley hippies to be arguing with the management all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 then to learn, oh, wait a minute, there's another way. And it's not the, the other way is not it it looks a little like conformity, which is not our favorite word, but there is something soothing about doing work without um, when when the mind doesn't uh, when the body doesn't follow the mind. Let me put it that way: to learn how to do work from the body and let somebody else's mind be, you know, figuring out the details. I don't know if that addresses your question, but anyway, that's what I said. <laughs> Thank you for your talk, Kathy. I wonder if you could, um, I haven't studied the paramitas formally yet. Um, you've touched on giving and um, patience. I'm sorry, we're getting some feedback in the Zendo. Um, and as I understand it, there's also the perfection of wisdom, meditation, um, ethical conduct and energy and i've wondered where is compassion in those well compassion is all over the place um the the first is giving and um you know giving and compassion aren't exactly synonymous but um the the, the whole perfection of uh, all the perfections are um, the are the work of the bodhisattva and the bodhisattva is the being the compassionate being so every one of the perfections are compassion the, the perfections are also they're taught like one through six you know it goes uh, um, uh, giving and then ethical conduct and then patience and vigor and uh, meditation and wisdom they sort of go in an order <clears throat> but they interact and intertwine it's <clears throat> it's a little bit like um, <clears throat> dissecting something you can take the parts apart and spread them out on a table but you lost the whole thing unless unless it's back together functioning as a unit. So all the perfections function as a unit, a whole organism, like a, a whole unit. So, but we can we can, you know, it helps us to kind of look at it from this angle and this angle and this angle. So anyway, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but the whole thing is compassion. Um we practice the practice of patience is for the sake of compassion, our compassionate work. Thank you. Wow, that was some feedback. Yeah, they, oh, go ahead. Our, our founding teacher was named Dainin, which means great patience. And he told me he didn't like that name. <laughs> um, and uh, you knew him a little bit. Do you have anything to say about that? 
a name the teacher gives you which you feel like you don't you don't like <laughs> and it's relevance to what you've been talking about or irrelevance so <clears throat> um the say again exactly what your question is like what do we do with a name we don't like <laughs> uh well i'm thinking of patience he had he had that he was given the name great patience which he was impatient with yeah. and a little bit embarrassed about do you have any comment on that not yeah. per se but just life yeah yeah well who knows where our names come from sometimes they fit sometimes you know sometimes we give a name to somebody that is aspirational we think oh it would be a good idea if that person sort of turned their attention to this. Um, or we might give a name that, you know, expresses our, um, you know, our take on that person. I mean, people name, people choose names for all different reasons, but it could be that uh, Karagiri Roshi, who I've, I met in Berkeley, he was, uh, before he went to Minnesota, he was at San Francisco Zen Center, as you know, and he came to Berkeley where I was practicing at the Berkeley Zendo, Zendo and that's where I first met him. And he was just, uh, I, almost, I almost followed him to Minnesota, but I didn't. Um, anyway, he was wonderful. Um, and he was very funny. I mean, I'm sure you know that. He was just very funny. Um, uh, but I can imagine that he would, <clears throat> he would feel that the challenge of patience is um, kind of, I don't know, a burden. And, you know, patience, a lot of, a lot of the kind of iterations of patience, like forbearance, forbearance in English is not a great word, you know, the practice of patience certainly includes, you know, just, that, you know, sitting immovable, no matter what. So, you know, we would call that forbearance. But forbearance in the English language is has got some, it's got some baggage to it, you know, and as a lot of English words do. Um, so I, I can imagine that, you know, if somebody named me forbearance, I would feel like, oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> anyway, that that's just what I have to say about names and Katagiri Roshi, a dear teacher. Thank you. Hey, Kathy, this is Deb, and thank you so much for your talk. Um, so my question is, you talked um, about having patience when things are really bad, but there's no fix to them. Um, and I'm thinking about, you know, those things that are so repetitive and so bad um, and they happen over and over again. Um, could you say more about how to be patient? You know, even if it's threats towards ourselves or threats towards other people, um, and yet include action in it, yeah, even if there's yeah. no fix. Yeah, I, I think that 
um, patience is the you know the third paramita. The next, uh, the fourth paramita is uh, vigor, virya, or energy. And to me, those two uh, paramitas are partners. Um, patience and vigor. And first of all, our patience is imbued with vigor. It's not a passive, uh, you know, uh, limp response to things. It's it's not you know it's not like closing things out and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna you know not interact with what's going on. That's not the patience we're talking about. The patience we're talking about is very uh, energetic. So that's the first thing I want to say. And um, um, there are, as we know, we have many capacities, we have many responsibilities, and we have many challenges in our lives. Um, And it's a constant question, like, when do I just sit and listen? And when do I, you know, stop this thing? When do I assert myself? in a situation? When do I speak? Um, I, we all know that we can decide to speak and have it go very badly. But we also all know that we can be passive and, uh, and um, not interact with the situation directly and also have it go badly. So we kind of know that there's no, um, there's no user's manual here, you know, we're, we're, we're <clears throat> when, as we learn things like the paramitas, the, the fact that we have the gifts, we, you know, we are patient people. We have, we have the capacity for patience. We've evolved this. It's not going to go away. Um, likewise, generosity. We have the capacity for generosity. It's already there. We receive untold numbers of, and, kinds of gifts all the time every day we can't help it so and and a lot of the times it doesn't cross our mind that that's the case so you know our practice is very much about bringing our attention to that which is already there so in the case of patience um you know in our sitting practice it's very clear when the bell rings you sit down and whatever comes up you keep sitting, you know, if physical pain comes up, we, you know, with our patients, we sit. If mental pain or emotional pain comes up, we go to our body and our breath and we sit with it, even if it keeps coming back strongly. We, you know, we have faith in the practice that, you know, when things get tough, we get big, strong and tough back. And um, uh, it's kind of as simple as that. And as for the, you know, the decisions that we make about when to do this and when not, you know, that's our life. There's, like I said, there's no, there's no owner's manual or user's manual here. (laughs) I don't know if that answers your question, but if you want to say more, Deb, go ahead. No, that that was very helpful. Thank you so much, Kathy. Hey, 
Kathy, um, and then just end up here. Um, I, have a, I have a question. When when I hear um, when I hear you know things like people going to remote locations to do to practice together, and everyone's wearing the same clothes, doing the same thing. There's a hierarchy established, and then there's orders given to maybe um, not orders, but you know, some along the lines of like, like don't question, just do as you're told. Don't think about it, just do it. Um, I, I kind of tense up around that. Um, so it, kind of, it sounds like a, a safety concern to me um, around kind of like brainwashing, and you know, from different religious events in the past and armies and governments, you know, it's kind of a, you know, yeah. like it's kind of a danger. So, but um, could you please speak to that? Sure. Um, <clears throat> when I first went to the Berkeley Zen Center, I was 19 years old and it was like 1971. And I knew since I was like 14, I was one of these weirdos that started reading about Zen at age 14. And by the time I <clears throat> got to college, I knew that I, I wanted to find Zen. And so that was how I got to Berkeley. Excuse me. So I walked in the Zendo and I, I was both really like happy and really finally I found a place of Zen. At the same time, what you're talking about came, you know, came across so strongly to me. And the fact of it is, Zen has a military legacy. There's no doubt about it. We, you know, there's a military legacy in our history. And <clears throat> for me, my, my, my uh, father, uh, was stationed in China during World War II, and he—I um, mean, it was—it was like the most eye-opening, interesting, and wonderful thing in his life being stationed in China, and he was fighting against the Japanese, and you know, for China, that's what was happening at that time, and <clears throat> after World War II, he went into uh, engineering and became a uh, aeronautical engineer and developed anti-ballistic missiles. His big, one of his older brother was in the CIA and was stationed after World War II in Japan and Korea and Vietnam. And their older brother was a nuclear physicist. He worked in the Manhattan Project, for God's sake. <laughs> and so I grew up with this family, and and the funny thing is, these these three men, these three brothers, my father and his and my uncles, were really nice guys. They were not conservative people. It was just their generation. That what was that's what was happening in their generation. That was the <clears throat> exciting and interesting and important uh, work, at, according to them, in their generation. So. <clears throat> That's a giant preface <clears throat> to my saying that I basically came to Zen when I figured out what my family was up to. I figured out what my father was doing 
when I was a young teenager and what my uncles were doing. And I knew I wanted no part in anything to do with that world. So that was part of my inspiration for Zen, to come to Zen. So when I went into the Berkeley Zen Center, I got this military, you know, like in, in the face military thing. I said, I kind of had, had to have a little talk with myself. So I said, okay, Kathy, you really want to do this. So we need to think about this in another way. Everyone's like, you know, really conforming in a way that makes me uncomfortable. They're all wearing the same clothes and they're all walking around like, you know, little, I don't know, something weird. <laughs> so I said, okay, this is a dance. What we are doing together here is we are learning a dance. And, you know, when, when you go into the zendo and people are new and they don't understand the forms and they feel terribly awkward and embarrassed and that they're going to make a mistake and they're going to get kicked out and that whole thing, you know, um, I decided, okay, this is just like learning a dance. I liked to do, um, you know, uh, line dancing and things like that at that time. And I knew that you go, if you're new, you're going to follow, you kind of stand in back and watch the steps and then gradually <clears throat> you you get um, included in the line and then you dance together and everyone knows that there's new people and how to bring them in and that you don't talk too much. You just keep dancing, you know, you just keep dancing. And so for me, I sort of switched to that model of uh, Zen monasticism. And that helped me to kind of get out of the military conformity hierarchy model, which I'm not interested in myself. Um, I can tolerate a degree of hierarchy, <laughs> but probably a small degree. Um, um, but for me, just to, just, to, just to look at it a different way helped me. And that is still the way I look at it. I go into a Zendo like a Upaya <clears throat> and and everyone is chanting together and bowing together. And if there, anyone who's brand new is feeling a little uncomfortable and, and embarrassed, but there's this body of sound and body of dance, which kind of picks up everyone and carries them. So <clears throat> the reason I'm telling you that is that that might offer you a different model. Because if, if we look at, you know, if we are, if we kind of, uh, the model of conformity and hierarchy and militarism is certainly present, but there can be another model. If you love the practice, you'll need another model. Thank you. Kathy, yes. um, so you and I are both in our 70s. You've been practicing a little bit longer than me, but not a lot longer, <laughs> much more intensely, I think. Tim and I had an interesting conversation a few days ago. Part of it was around um, where we are in our practice and our lives. We're sort of in that narrowing down a bit, focusing more. Um, I mean, just simple, even some simple changes in practice where, yeah, when I had pain years ago, it would be sit with it, watch it, use practice with it. 
now, depending on where the pain is, it's a signal for me, no, don't sit with it. You need to move so you don't damage yourself. And so I'm finding there are a lot of changes and, and ways that I have to cultivate more patience rather than more intensity if it's going to work for me at this point in my life as I'm approaching 80 and my body is changing unbelievably. So I'm curious hearing from you, your own personal experiences now that you are much older and probably experiencing a lot of those physical, mental changes with aging. How has your practice changed, both on the cushion and off? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I'm 71. Norman's 76. And um, what we're seeing, you know, in all the Zen centers that I know about, you know, the average age of people is a lot older than it was 50 years ago when I started. And and we are adapting and including. We, we're just making it work for people. If people, you know, lots of people sit in chairs, lots of people do walking, slow walking during Zazen. People are welcome to lie down on their back if they, if they need to. We're just adapting to people who come to practice. And I'm, I have to say that I, I find that extremely encouraging about our practice community, that we are not, that we haven't like held to a, um, um, a fixed idea of what practice is. The container of practice is not fixed. The container of practice is our human life. You pretty much have to be alive to practice. Other than that, you know, everyone is welcome in whatever condition they're in. So I feel that, especially the older communities, I mean, some some of the Zen communities are older, and most of them are, I think, but some are not. And it depends on the community. It depends on, you know, who's present in the community. But I'm seeing this all around, that we are learning how to practice with the bodies we have today, which might be different tomorrow and probably will be in fact. And to, and to allow that to be um, uh, an act of compassion for others because, um, you know, we want, we want people to, if they, if they, if they want to practice, we want to make it, possible for them to do so, whatever it takes. And when people come to a practice place and they see everybody sitting upright on a cushion and not moving for 40 minutes, they might not stick around. But if they see people in chairs and people, you know, in different kinds of props, they might feel encouraged to, st to stick around. So I feel that it's, it's really compassionate work at this point in our practice. One of the biggest issues off the cushion for me, and it's still a struggle for me, is wanting to live the bodhisattva ideal and yet uh, recognizing that it's very easy to do that to a degree that is actually creating self-harm. And yet it's been such a habit and such a practice for so many years that it continues to be a real struggle to um 
not overdo it in service for others and being there for others while not kind of slowing down and taking care of my own needs a little bit more, which include needs for a more spacious life. You have any comments about that? Yeah. Well, first of all, there's the aging thing. And as we get older, um, it's a kindness to, for me, it's a kindness to my, my sons and my grandchildren for me to take care of myself. You know, um, it would be better for them if I, if I could stick around a little longer. And it would be better for them if I were, um, um, you know, ha have some energy and, you know, want and do things with them. So I, I, I figure, okay, well, for that, I will take care of myself. So there's that, but but the but the but the 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 foundation of compassion is there's no giver gift or there's no giver receiver or gift. In other words, there's no difference between you and the person you are giving to. So give to yourself. Giving to yourself is giving to you know giving to the to all beings. We don't, you know, our, in our Western tradition, giving has a lot to do with self-sacrifice. And I think, I, I think, I don't know if this is true, but I think that self-sacrifice is especially familiar to women, uh, women of an age. It's kind of our, our, uh, our you know, <laughs> it's kind of our knee-jerk reaction to things is self-sacrifice. And we know that self-sacrifice has a very high cost on the people around us, on ourselves, on our health, you know, that self-sacrifice in the way that we may have been raised is, is, uh, has a high price. And that is not what the Bodhisattva path is. Um, we we uh, include ourselves in all the beings that we are serving. We are serving ourselves as a being. And that's, it's like no joke. It's like, really take care of yourself. It's better for, it's better for all beings if you take care of yourself. Hi, Kathy. I had something I wanted to add. Hi. Hi. Um, <clears throat> so you were mentioning earlier about what is the merit in, in doing kind acts. And, you know, I often find that an act of kindness can often be meriting in and of itself. That, you know, just returning a lost toy or picking up trash off the street can often make you feel good. And I feel that, you know, just allowing, allowing yourself to do that at least once every day. And allowing and allowing yourself to feel the gratitude for your kind act is also a way to <clears throat> remind yourself that, you know, good things are possible. Paul, is there did was there a question that 
Um, uh, not really. That was just all I wanted to add. Right. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yes. Um, and, and you bring up an important point, which is when we do something kind or when we do kind acts, we don't have to feel, feel afraid of feeling good about it. You know, <laughs> it's not like we're not allowed to feel good about it because, because, you know, there's no gift giver or receiver. No, no. Feel good about what you've done. Um, and as we all know, if you take that too far, then you kind of have that expectation that it's going to be reciprocated. And then we get into that whole thing. So, you know, don't go there. Stop yourself. Um, but, you know, enjoy the feeling, especially when you do something for someone else and makes them happy. You know, enjoy their happiness. Enjoy the happiness that you and that person connect with. Don't be afraid of that. Of course, you are definitely right about that, Kathy. Thank you. <clears throat> Kathy, thank you so much. Thank you so much for spending this little bit of time with us, teaching us. And Who's talking to me? this is Tim. This is Hi, Tim. introduced you. And uh, now we're going to do our closing chant with the hope that you'll come back and give us more teaching again soon. Although I know you're going to be in at a pie for a month. So maybe after that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk with you and it's a pleasure to see all of you. So now we do our closing champ. Thank you.